now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi. Hello to Boo Boo. Hello to Scooby Doo. Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. the money and how did you get the woman? What is it? There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? First, I managed to shatter my laptop screen. I, I don't recall how or when it happened, so I've chosen to blame my dog because at least I can forgive her. I literally, I like, I closed it. I don't remember closing it. Maybe I closed it too hard or I closed it on something or she closed it on something, but I opened it and it was broken. Then I had to wait a week for uh, the new one to be delivered so we couldn't record then. And then when we went to record today, my mic was broken. So I'm now recording on my laptop mic on purpose. Uh, so this has just been a nightmare. And we're, we're just trying really hard, but who knows? Yeah, this is why we need, one, a bigger audience, and two, sponsorship. We're a very rough and ready operation. Yeah, I guess uh, we're, we're trying to do a Christmas episode. We wanted to get one out last week instead of releasing on Christmas Eve when no one is listening to podcasts, but obviously that didn't work out, so... So, Merry Christmas! Well, if you're listening to this, uh, maybe because you hate your family and you're desperately trying to find some time away from them, uh, you know, I uh, hope this helps a little bit. Yeah, we're your new family now. Imagine us. It's just you, Candace, me, Tiff, and Sterling Holloway. We're your new family. Yeah. We're taking you in for Christmas. We're not great at cooking, but... We'll swear a lot, so it'll be just like Christmas at home. But you agree with our politics, so it's it's even better. Yeah, yeah. That's that's an implicit understanding, because if you don't, you're <laughs> going to get pretty mad about this episode. Well, let's just get into it. I think we're going to go into a period of a lot of recording really soon, so hopefully we won't be leaving any more weeks without any content. And yeah, look forward to the new year. I don't know. What else has happened? Cats. Cats has happened. Cats has happened. And if they censor any of the rendering errors by, like, fixing them before it's released, I'll be pissed. It's currently December 21st, and we're going to try to get this out on, as I said, December 24th. So me editing is going to be a lot like Tom Hooper in the fucking editing bay on Cats, like, 36 hours before it was produced. And the patch they had to release because, I guess, like, Judy Dench's butt fur wasn't rendered well enough or whatever. So... <laughs> That's going to be fun. I keep reading Tom Hooper as a Toby Hooper and thinking, like, what a different kind of film that would have been. Like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Cats. <laughs> Toby Hooper would have never allowed this to happen. <laughs> because, first of all, he would have gotten real cats. He might have yeah, skinned exactly. them and then used the pelts to clothe the actors. He would not rely on some namby-pamby CGI bullshit to give Taylor Swift six tits or whatever happens in Cats. I mean, really, this just validates our, our theory that CGI has gone too far. Yeah. We don't need it. Also, we don't need any more adaptations of Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. Let's just get that right out there. <laughs> we don't need them enough. Who cares? Let's do something else. Andrew Lloyd Webber is like the 
he's like the Laffy Taffy or the nerds boxes, you know, uh, of the arts world. I feel like the more attention we pay to him, it's just, it says something sad about the state of our culture and the anti-intellectualism that's, you know, underpinning it. Uh, he makes me angry. I wish, yeah, I, I wish his knighthood would be rescinded. But it's also like, we don't believe in the monarchy, so we don't believe in his knighthood anyway. So maybe we should just go all the way back to like roundhead days and just fucking cut his head off. I would agree with that. However, um, the semi-recent royal interference in Parliament is now making me feel like maybe I don't understand the whole ceremonial, like, British figurehead, you know, uh, part of the government very well, and that maybe Andrew Lloyd Webber can, like, declare, like, a unilateral, um, (laughs) you know, war on the Falklands or something. I'm not really sure what's going on here. So I just want, I want to, I want to cut that off at the knees. Or we could just cut him off at the knees quite literally, not have to worry about this at all. Okay. Okay, well, let's kneecap him, like Joe Pesci. Try it like this. Supposing you were starving to death. And you didn't have any food, and you didn't have any money, and you didn't have any place to get anything. And there were some loaves of bread out in front of a market. Now, remember, you're starving to death. And the man's back was turned. Would you swipe one? You bet I would. That's because you're honest. You see, I'd have a six-course dinner at the table door across the street and then say I'd forgotten my purse. Get the difference? Yeah. You're way smarter. That's it. We're smart. Okay, well, uh, welcome to What's in the Basket. My name is Candace, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tiff. Hey. And Amelia. Hello. And today we are discussing the bleak 1940 Christmas dramedy, Remember the Night. And Ooh. I feel like bleak's a good word to describe it. It is very bleak. It's very melancholy. Yeah, it's a bit of a letdown. It's a bit of a downer. But one that was needed, I think, because you have to temper the Christmas season with, you know, the reminder that people send it incarcerated and or forced to spend time with Sterling Holloway on a farm (laughs) in Indiana. You're saying that, like, spending time with Sterling Holloway would not be a fun time. It would absolutely be a fun time. And really, out of everybody, especially in this movie, he's the only one whose politics we'd agree with. That is, that is a fair assessment. I'd pick him over fucking spending the holidays with Fred McMurray. That's for goddamn sure. Well, and, and I touched upon this in a previous episode, but at the time, Fred McMurray still had decent politics, you know. Um, he was one of the only actors who was willing, you know, who had the, who had the balls to join the Anti-Nazi League, which was formed by um, writers and directors and producers in the late 30s before the U.S. entered the war, even before, I believe, before even Germany invaded Poland. So Fred started out okay, much like Cagney, and then kind of just went belly up as things went along. That's why you can't trust a man ever. Yeah, that's that's a fair, I think that's a fair assessment of this movie. I think that's the theme of this movie. Production history is not really my forte, like Tiff, but... This is kind of the like the culmination of um, a lot of different behind the scenes factors going on both at Paramount and in the industry at large um, at the turn of the decade. So going into 1940, this is kind of the the setup that we have. Twice, the director Mitchell Lison had wanted to work with Barbara Stanwyck, and he got someone else. 
1937 Swing High, Swing Low, which was an adaptation of Burlesque, the Broadway play that had made Stanwyck a star. He asked for Barbara and he got Carol Lombard. And the next time on 1939's Midnight, he asked for Barbara and got Claudette Colbert. So by the time 1940 rolled around, he was itching to direct this marvelous little meteor, little proto-fascist. And ironically enough, Stanwyck's role as career criminal Lee Leander in this movie was originally intended for Carol Lombard. Uh, it was while filming Rumor of the Night that its screenwriter Preston Sturgis came around on the subject of Stanwyck and promised to write her a great comedy. She dismissed it, thinking it was one of the many, many ideas of his that would fly out of his mouth and dissipate into nothing. But for once in, once in his life, he kept his word. The result was The Lady Eve. But enough has been said about The Lady Eve, so we're going to talk about the one that laid the groundwork not only for Lady Eve, but for a minor collaboration between Stanwyck and Frederick Murray that I think might be called Double Indemnity, if you guys have heard of that movie. Um, uh, it doesn't ring a bell. It doesn't. I, hmm. you know, I, I think we might have mentioned it in passing once. Maybe. I mean, you know, Ever uh, G. Robinson. I, I don't know. So the script was initially entitled Beyond These Tears, which <laughs> is a real Whoa. fucking dud. It kind of sounds like near where I work, there's a restaurant called Vodka, Borscht and Tears. <laughs> And that's literally all that's on their menu. <laughs> I love it. That's very Soviet of them. Uh, the Amazing <laughs> Marriage was likewise floated at one point, if I remember correctly, from an outline supplied by a different screenwriter. That's not a kind of title that Preston Sturges himself would come up with. And Remember the Night entered contention early. It was Sturges' preference. But Paramount still kicked around some other gems, like The Fortunate Sinner, I Love a Thief, State versus Love, Romance on Probation, Love Convicted, <laughs> and Out on Bond. These are all just like um, Forensic Files episode <laughs> titles. They all sound like Madeline Carroll movies from like 1935 that no one has seen since. Buried. So they sound like the movies that blew up when the Fox Vault exploded. That's really what they sound <laughs> like. So, um, like for a sexy little peek at uh, Remember the Night's gestation, here's what Sturge has remembered about writing the film, which was an arduous experience for him. At the studio, writing Remember the Night for my new producer, Al Lewin, almost caused me to commit harakiri several times, but I postponed it for some later assignment. The trouble was in finding a way to get some pizzazz into the story. When I had Fred McMurray as the district attorney take Barbara Stanwyck, the girl on trial for theft, up to the mountains to reform her, the script died of pernicious anemia. When I had him take her up because his conscience bothered him for having had her trial continued until after the Christmas season, it perished from lack of oxygen. When I had him take her up moved by charitable impulse and the Yuletide spirit, it expired from galloping eunuchry. So I thought of a novelty. The district attorney takes her up to the mountains for the purpose of violating the Man Act. This has always been a good second act. It is an act enjoyed by all, one that we rarely tire of, and one not above the heads of the audience. In Rain, for instance, the preacher started to reform her and ended up laying her like a carpet. In Resurrection, he got the erection first and hit the trail much later. And Remember the Night, love reformed her and corrupted him, which gave us the finely balanced moral that one man's meat is another man's poison, or caveat emptor. As it turned out, the picture had quite a lot of schmaltz, a good dose of schmertz, and just enough schmutz to make it box office. I hate Sturgis. Oh, God. The most offensive word in all of that was meat. 
Yeah, I think it was Unicree, personally. I don't want to well, think about yeah, that. Well, yeah, Unicree was, it was bad, but the fact that he's like, man's meat. Where, just remember, remember the night could be about cannibalism. Okay, so remember uh, the Christmas in Connecticut AU, where it just turns out that, you know, Cuddle Sackle wants to, you know, skin Dennis Morgan alive or whatever. Yeah. You can take <laughs> it kind of that way, you know. In this movie, Stanwick is, you know, a streetwise city girl, and she's going back to some farm in Indiana, and, you know, Beulah Bondi probably owns a meat cleaver. So, well, that's my suggestion. I think that's what he should have done instead. Because what ended up happening was, so the Man Act, for people who don't understand, uh, you know, the vagaries of, you know, constitutional squabbles in early 20th century America, the Man Act was uh, in response to, quote unquote, white slavery, the epidemic of white slavery, the understanding being that you could no longer uh, transport a female across state lines for immoral purposes. It was intended to cut down on sex work. What it really also meant, was meant to do was to cut down on things like, you know, miscegenation, you know, forbidding, forbidding people from uh, leaving the state for interracial marriages, you know, that, that kind of thing. It was, it, anyway, whatever. So the Man Act is kind of a footnote now in history, but there it was a line in the original cut of Remember the Night that lays out fairly clearly that Fred McMurray intended to violate the Mann Act, i.e. he was taking Stanwyck uh, out of New York State so that he could boink her. And that, unsurprisingly, was cut from the film because Sturges didn't get the memo that it wasn't 1933 anymore. And you can't yeah. say things like that. <laughs> I love just how in America, state lines apparently was sacrosanct and like it was almost like there were physical barriers between them. Like police couldn't go across them. After the whole, the depression and the gangsters and all of that, they just still didn't fix that. They're just like, ah, well, we could fix it, but why don't we not do that? Why don't we just leave it? So I think maybe we should recount the plot of Remember the Night, which is something I forget to do every single episode is like talk about what happens in the movie. It's extremely hard. Recounting a plot is extremely hard to do. I mean, one, we're not script writers, so that's a count against us, obviously. We can't overcome that. But, like, it's just also very hard because a lot of these plots are just, like, fucking unintelligible. Yeah. Like, what are we supposed to do? But this one, thankfully, fairly straightforward. I say that, but now watch me struggle to tell you what it was. I guess, it, well, it obviously begins with Barbara Stanwyck's character stealing a bracelet in a very chic fashion. She goes into the jewellery shop, she tries it on, she asks something of the clerk, the clerk goes to do whatever that is, and then she leaves with the bracelet on, only to be caught by the police later. Glorious, madam, isn't it? Mm, yes. Uh, could I see that one down there, please? Why, yes, indeed, madam. By all means. Mr. Meyer... It then begins our courtroom drama segment of the film where she's on trial for, obviously, theft and shoplifting. And she's got the, this lawyer, I don't know who plays him, but he's very impassioned about, about her mental state and is trying everything and anything he can to get her off because 
it's Christmas and who wants to be in jail over Christmas? But Fred McMurray cooks up a plan to get her in jail over Christmas, to get the, essentially get the case adjourned over Christmas so she has to stay in jail without a conviction. Because he, he feels like um, the jury is, is going to be a little too lenient. They're going to be sympathetic to Stanwyck. Because her lawyer's concocting this whole, you know, thing about how she's, you know, uh, in a catatonic state. Bracelet is under a powerful light. The young girl stares at it. Closer. Closer. The great central stone flashes blindingly in her eyes. Blue, green, purple, orange. Suddenly the colors are gone. All is darkness. What is this? Where is the shop? Where is the light she is under? What is she doing on Fifth Avenue, blocks away from Meyer and Company? With a thrill of horror, she feels at arrest, not daring to look. No doubt about it. Then panic! She turns and hurries towards the great jewelry store. Will he believe her? Fear turns her legs to lead. One block, two blocks. She goes blindly, bumping into strangers who think she must be crazy. Six blocks. Ah, there at last is the great jewelry store, its windows blazing with gems. But no, the gems are gone. The window is almost bare. With a sinking heart, she tries the lock. It's closed. Meyer and company have closed for the night. You know, she steals to address some deeper psychological need, and they think that he's putting her through the ringer. You know, they think Link Murray as the DA is putting her through the ringer. Which, like, which is like, that's how courtrooms work. I mean, it's not ideally how they work, but it is how they work. She obviously isn't happy about being in there over Christmas and... Fred McMurray overhears her expressing this. Then he does some under-the-table deal to get her out on Bond. He busts her out over Christmas, and then she's brought to his apartment, and now he has to deal with it. Because, like, where else is she going to go? Yeah, she's got nowhere to go. She has no friends, apparently, you know, which I find difficult to believe. I mean, I mean, it's not difficult to believe of myself, but... <laughs> Um, (laughs) Yeah, like, no one wants to spend Christmas with Barbara Stanwyck. I mean, even if she's Barbara Stanwyck, the, like, you know, low-life, you know, gutter-snipe jewel thief, she's still Barbara Stanwyck. But I I can't believe she couldn't find one big butch to shack up with. I don't know, whatever. Poor decision. (laughs) So instead, she decides she's going to go with Fred. Because Fred finds out that Stanny, much like himself, is a Hoosier. And she has not been to Indiana since, like, high school. Why did you have him play this piece? Because that's where I'm going. No. Are you a Hoosier? Sure. Wabash, Indiana. That is a farm just outside of Wabash. Wabash, Indiana. No wonder I liked you. I'm from Eltonville. No. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's only about 50 miles outside of Wabash. Yes, sir. Well, I'll be (laughs) dying. I think we had to come here and beat like this. And he's going to go home to Indiana to visit his family. He thinks, oh, she can, you know, hitch along. She can see her family. She can try and, you know, patch things up with her mother, who apparently she has this deep rift with. She can meet my mom, Beulah Bondi. She can meet my 
weird cousin farmhand i don't know uh sterling holloway you know she can it's essentially national lampoon's christmas vacation yes well actually just the vacation not christmas vacation because it's them on the open road or in a field of cows or committing arson (laughs) you know The arson, I always forget about the arson, and then I see it, and I'm like, all right, she does try to light something on fire so she doesn't have to see him, (laughs) you know? Which is me looking at Fred McMurray every, you know... (laughs) Every time. I'm just like, God, I wish something was currently on fire so I didn't have to stare at this man anymore. Must feel kind of funny to you to be a fugitive from justice. Very funny. You know, all the way across Pennsylvania, I've been trying to figure out how that fire got started. Nobody was smoking. I was. You were. Did you throw anything in that basket? Nothing but a match. A, A lighted match? Oh, I guess there must have been some life in it. Did you throw it in there on purpose? Well, I wasn't aiming for the spittoon. I suppose you know that's called arson. No. I thought that was when you bit somebody. But yeah, essentially on this road trip, they're, they're obviously feelings grow understanding blossoms between them and um then it's all fucked up at the end because she decides that she's um gonna do the right thing and go to jail and i've gotta say never ever go to jail for a man even if you're guilty just don't do it now so a lot of people approach this movie interested in exploring this facet of stanwick's character because she had not previously taken on a dramatic role with this kind of like warmth before in the sense that she'd been in like tear jerkers you know but she hadn't been in something that used both her her dramatic gifts and her sense of comedic timing. And that's really where you could see kind of the path being laid for Lady Eve. Because Sturgis is so fascinated by the ways in which Stanwyck responds to stimuli, the way she moves her face, the way that she moves her hair, the way that, you know, the emotions trickle through her eyes and then immediately flash away. She has a very specific acting style. And I think he was also paying very close attention to the rapport that she has with Fred McMurray because her rapport with Fred McMurray as a person, not necessarily as a character, because Fred McMurray and and John Sargent are not similar. Sargent is a much more, I guess, um, put together human being than Fred McMurray ever was. Fred McMurray as an individual is basically the Henry Fonda character in The Lady Eve. So I, I think that Sturgis was able to kind of watch this and see how she maneuvered around somebody with this immense shyness and this immense reticence and this immense kind of like fear of women. And then just incorporated that into the script. So it is interesting to see how Remember the Night is is a little bit of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess, for what is for many people going to become Stanwyck's greatest role and her greatest performance. I mean, it's interesting to see like the beginnings of that comedic gift that she has being explored in this. Like, it's obviously not a comedy, but there are moments of comedy. Like, she's a really straight talker. She's got a lot of great lines that she, you know, she comes back at him. Like, everything that Fred McMurray gives her, she comes back at him with, like, double the force, which is, it's a delight to see. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting um, to see the beginnings of that and then see that fulfilled 
totally in the Lady Eve. I really like the uh, their first kind of extended scene together in his apartment when mm. she thinks she's been brought there for, let's say, nefarious purposes. She thinks he's got some ideas and he's sort of insisting that he doesn't. He's got that great line about his life being one long round of whoopee, which I love. One of these days, one of you boys is going to start one of these scenes differently. One of us girls is going to drop dead from surprise. No doubt. Now, if you'll tell me what I, you... Uh... I suppose you do this with all the lady prisoners? Oh, my, yes. My life is just one long round of whoopee. You're in a good spot for it. Wonderful. I merely have to raise my finger and my slightest whim is satisfied. Mm. Now, if you... And I suppose if uh, anybody says no, you just put them right back in the cooler. That's right. But uh, I like their sort of sparring where she's mostly just bullying him in that scene. Mm. It's, it's, it's good. Yeah. Uh, Dan Callahan, who wrote a, a really interesting book on Stanwyck as an actress, contrasts this movie with her previous performance, which is in Golden boy and the role in golden boy because it's a golden boy because it's a clifford odette's piece is very flat very one note because odette's hated women and is is very maternal and that is not helped necessarily by the fact that she's playing against william holden who of course at that time is very young and very insecure but you have a similar dynamic behind the scenes of remember the night and even though fred mcmurray pound for pound is not the actor that william holden is going to end up being there's still a different kind of restraint at play there where you never really feel like Stanwyck is going to push Fred McMurray any farther than she needs to, which is, I think, a really interesting dynamic because he had worked with Carol Lombard multiple times at this point. And uh, Lombard thought McMurray's difficulties on set were just like the funniest thing in the world. Like when they were filming, I think it was Hands Across the Table. If he had trouble like getting nervous before a scene, she would just like kick him in the shins and be like, (laughs) hey, you dumb fuck, you know, like, go ahead. You know, it's not that hard. It's not it's not rocket science kind of a deal. And uh, Stanwyck never approached it with that same. She would make jives, I guess, more to reassure the crew that this movie would eventually be finished, you know, and that they could at some point go home and see their families. But there's a gentle gentleness that comes through in this performance that really does not come through in a lot of the earlier Stanwyck performances. And I think that's because you're really seeing her as someone who has so firmly mastered her craft that she knows that she is the she 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 is the captain now you know she's <laughs> steering this ship and i think that's part of the reason why lies in mitchell lies in the director so desperately wanted to work with stanwick because he really was really only interested in working with actors and specifically actresses because he was always a women's director women who took charge and he that's why he loved uh, he loved colbert he loved lombard and he loved Sandwick because he could trust them to guide the rest of the actors in a way that they might feel kind of challenged by when it came to being directed by a man. You know, she has that certain while about her where people want inherently want to please Stanwyck because she is such a hard worker. And she can execute those kinds of things without coming across as a taskmaster, which, of course, is part of her genius. And it's part of that legendary work ethic that she had, you know, spending 23 hours on set and then taking an hour-long nap and then waking back up and going right back at it. When they were filming this movie, um, they shot at a Paramount Ranch, which, of course, was a recent fatality in the California wildfires. And in those sequences, because the movie obviously takes place at Christmas time, um, she's wearing very heavy costuming. She's wearing a lot of wool. And it was 100 degrees outside. 
And um, for the barn dance sequence where she's wearing the wedding gown that Edith had designed for her, which is supposed to be uh, like an Edwardian gown, very heavy, lots of layers, you know, not easy to move around. And she refused to take it off. You know, she's sitting there in a corset sweating to death in a combination of the California desert heat and those hot lights because she's such a perfectionist that she's not going to take that time off to you know, to, to change outfits. It's, it's a full-on, like, Jean Harlow on the reclining board kind of a deal. You know, she's not getting out of that dress for any fucking reason. And if it looked like at the end of the day they didn't need her anymore, she would go back to her trailer and she would stay in costume because just in case, just in case they needed to call her back, which is something that no one else did. Frederick Murray certainly didn't do that. You know, you were out and <laughs> you were back on the golf course or, you know, calling up, phoning up your drug dealer or whatever else, you know, that that was kind of uh, the day rigueur pattern for the end of the workday for most stars. And I, I really like how you can see that tendency of Stanwyck and how you can see that drive on display in Remember the Night because it is kind of a difficult character. Because the first thing you see the woman doing is basically doing a smash and grab at a jewelry store and the jeweler is just distraught. You know, this isn't, it doesn't have that kind of high comedy, you know, a hijink tone of something like the Lady Eve. It's filmed as if there's a crime has very definitely occurred and it's a bold Mm. first step, I think. Yeah, she definitely does a lot of work to make a character that could so easily not be sympathetic um sympathetic so it's like while a lot of these characters would be played a certain way where they have a redemptive arc yes stanwick has that redemptive arc in this film except the whole time you're sympathetic you're on board with her character it's not something that happens after she learns like after she goes to the farmhouse and meets fred mcmurray's family and learns the real meaning of Christmas kind of thing. Like you're on board with her from her basically stealing that. And it's quite a hard thing to pull off. I mean, maybe not so much today, but it would have been particularly back then when crime, that sort of crime, probably not looked upon as sympathetically as it would have been now. But yeah, it really just exemplifies her, I guess, the way that her worth, work ethic and her empathy and humanity sort of comes through on camera. I think that scene too with her mother is really crucial in that. It's hard to watch. Absolutely. You're looking fine, Mama. What'd you come here for? What do you want? I don't want anything, Mama. It was just Christmas and Mr. Sargent happened to be driving. You see, I live just outside of Wabash and I knew you'd be glad to. So he brought me with him. Glad? Why should I be glad? Good riddance to bad rubbish, I said the day she left. Oh, oh please, Mama, Mr. Sergeant. Th- Just like her father she is. Always laughing at serious things she was. Never doing what she was told till she winds up stealing, as I always said she would. Stealing my mission money that I put by with a sweat on my brow. I didn't steal it. I've told you a thousand times I only borrowed it. I was going to pay you back out of what I'd earned. But you didn't pay me back, did you? And you never paid me back. And you never paid anybody else back. How could I after you called me a thief in front of the whole town? Do you think anybody let me work for them after that? We weren't good enough for her here. A decent home and a hard-working mother with a crook for a daughter. I don't want to rush it, but we've still got 50 miles to go. Don't you think we'd better be on our way? Thanks. Bye, Mama. It's been very interesting meeting you, Mrs... The name doesn't concern you. It certainly does not. 
But it's it's got like that really palpable kind of hurt that she plays. And I think that goes a long way in making her like more sympathetic than she necessarily would have been. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so so back to the jewelry store scene. I think the direction of this in particular, which, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into later, is, is interesting because Sturges would never have thought of this as being like a crime <laughs> because Sturges didn't think of anything as a crime apart from like maybe like stealing from the American people. But... <laughs> Or being mean to him personally as a studio executive. Those are the only things that were real crimes in Sturgis's mind. But you see kind of a growing ambivalence about the the decade that's passed and about what the tone of that decade implies, I guess, for the future, about whether or not such behaviors can continue. It, 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 it strikes you as being kind of an old-fashioned plot line by 1940 because crime in film has become old-fashioned by 1940. There's been such a decline in that kind of behavior. We've even lost kind of that charming, you know, Warren William type that, uh, of, of gentleman criminal. They, they've all vanished from the scene. And it, it's, I don't want to say a, a pre-code topic perhaps but it's very much a, a topic of the de- of the depression yeah in which anything that people do to get by is rationalized and by 1940 though that's changing in the 30s so many people were very sympathetic to gangsters killing people because they could relate to being that desperate that you would resort to that but i also think the decline of that has something to do with America's entry into the war and the lead up to that is that crime isn't very patriotic. You're trying to build this sort of America first respect authority, respect your military kind of feeling, um, even if it's not quite a direct thought A to B happening. It is, it does kind of lead into a decline in sympathy towards criminals. Yeah. No, I was just going to say there's absolutely that kind of like whiplash from the widespread distrust of the government and of authority throughout the depression. And then suddenly it's, you know, wartime is like, oh God. Yeah. It's like got to be real team America. Yeah. I know. It's suddenly, it's no longer enough to just look at what's that tweet? A beautiful face, huge. Instead, it's like Fred McMurray's double chin in silhouette. <laughs> Which is something I, I added to my notes. Very helpful, you know, to present current me. Just as Fred Max double chin silhouette. Yeah, I pointed that out while we were watching it, and you were you'd never noticed it, and it really. I had no. Okay, there we go. Okay, we're in the context. <laughs> I guess I thought, you know, I'll write this down, and then Tiff will remember. Tiff, please, please elaborate. During the very romantic scene at Niagara Falls, when they're framed in silhouette, uh, McMurray's chin is just. It's it's quite bulbous. There are two of them. He's got a chin belial. You know. Chin Belial, I think you could probably say McMurray's probably got the, the most significant Chin Belial out of the people in the studio era. I can't think of anyone else whose Chin Belial is, is such a steadfast companion throughout all their years. Because most people develop that as an older individual. Fred McMurray is like not even 30 years old here or something. I mean, I could, you well, Ronald Reagan had like just several goiters. <laughs> on and around his person when he was a movie star. So I, I, it's... Ron Reagan is a goiter. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it probably has something to do with um, just having bad politics. Maybe that was like the seed of evil germinating within. 
you can just see people start to develop it as as they become yeah. more and more conservative over the and look at Cagney look at Stanwick honestly there's a bit in I think it's Victoria Steele whatever her name is I think it's Victoria Steele is that her name the woman who's writing the two-part Stanwick biography that's Victoria Wilson pardon me because the book is called Steel True uh, Victorian Wilson mentions in her book that Stanwick just didn't like fatties she was she was very open about that apparently because she thought it showed a lack of discipline which is the most Barbara Stanwick thing I've ever heard in my entire yeah. life you know so I can see I can see her being just just pulsed repulsed by the chin repulsed she was repulsed by anyone who had anything more than what 17% body fat probably whatever Joel had circa bird of paradise that was her cutoff <laughs> that was her absolute total cutoff which now I think is a good time to relate um, a very important anecdote in Barbara Stanwyck's career so remember the night like many other Stanwyck movies was finished ahead of schedule under budget this was driven both by Mitchell Eisen's preferences for single takes with few extraneous bits for the editors to fuck with because he didn't trust them, as well as Stanwyck's relentless work ethic. And so it should emphasize that she worked hard. Now, a lot of people during the studio era claim to have worked hard, whatever, you know, the, oh, I was on set for 18-hour days and blah, blah, whatever. Fuck it. That, that's not true. Stanwyck was the only person who did any of this. And I could, you say Rita Hayworth had her hairline, you know, move back, you know. Uh, I say, you know, Stanwyck didn't have to do that, but she was probably there for no reason other than just being on the set at the same time because she was a <laughs> fanatic about this and apparently hated leaving. If I may offer a Joel anecdote. On <laughs> their first picture together, Gambling Lady in 1934. Joel got fed up waiting for the photographer to call him in for promotional shots. They were shooting something. I think it was like around a card table because it's got a gambling lady. It's about gamblers. Anyway, so he gets up and he just goes to lunch. He's like, I'm hungry. I'm leaving. So Stanwyck shows up. She's on time for her part of the call and she finds out that Joel's gone and she's furious. And <laughs> once she finds Joel, not only does she mock him, basically saying... <laughs> That because he's, quote, tan and pretty, unquote, he thinks he can do whatever the fuck he wants. Uh, <laughs> and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's actually quite close to the actual series words. She says, basically, get up off your fat California sunshine ass and work. <laughs> and she scared the ever-loving fuck out of him and anyone else she ever worked with. And Good. I really <laughs> admire that in her. That's something I would find intolerable in a coworker. However, anyone who emotionally abuses Joel is a good person in my book. <laughs> this includes virtually, you know, uh, I don't know, everyone, his mother, I don't know, anybody. Uh, Von Sternberg, <laughs> you know, making him do that famous, that famous story about when he was cast in The Devil is a Woman with Dietrich and Von Sterberg didn't like the way that he ordered coffee so he made him do it like 35 times and the Joel was like fuck this I'm leaving and he quit the picture and then they replaced him with Cesar Romero which made way more sense to begin with uh, anyway um, we're gonna get into a Frederick Murray story that I also like I is have this been, the one that you tease? I've been waiting to share this oh god okay for weeks <laughs> I'm terrified now. I have told this to a couple people in real life outside of this podcast and I've gotten a reaction of horror and this includes my girlfriend who could not pick Fred McMurray out of a police lineup and she was suitably terrorized and I don't think she slept since um, I think I <laughs> did an emotional abuse to her 
Um, <laughs> just like Samwick and Joel. So I mentioned oh, McMurray's uh, diffidence as an actor. Mitchell Eisen knew him well. He have directed him several times. He knew how to work with Fred to get something worth printing. He'd drawn him out of his shell a little in the past. Uh, like when they were filming Hands Across the Table, Fred had a love scene with Lombard where she was supposed to kiss him and then walk out of camera. And then once out of range, she turned to Liza and she shrugged like, meh like whatever which is like really funny because mcmurray's supposed to be like a lady killer gigolo in that you know but this was a recurring theme i guess in fred mcmurray's acting like when they were supposed to shoot a love scene in this movie like stanwick showed up on set and was like oh this will be fun you know mcmurray's supposed to like make love to me on camera today you know like people would make fun of him for this it was just like a recurrent you know that's sad so um (laughs) Uh, but Lysen understood how to hew the material to work for McMurray. So he would cut Serge's big, stupid monologues because they intimidated Fred. Uh, so he did a lot, you know, to, to make things easier for McMurray because he pitied him in a lot of different ways. In the scene at the very end of the movie where they're in that weird, like, catacomb thing and where Stanny's getting carted off to the Who's gal, this is actually the part when Fred was supposed to tell her that he loved her. Not the scene earlier at Niagara Falls. They filmed this first. But while they were filming, McMurray just vanished. And then here's the version of events as related in Victoria Wilson's Stanwyck biography. Lysen asked his assistant where Fred was and was told he was behind the set. Lysen went around the back of the set, and McMurray was crying. I've never said that to anybody in my life, he told Lysen. I just can't. You must have loved a dog or your mother, said Lysen. I've never said I love you to anybody. I just can't say it. Wow, full sociopath Fred McMurray. So Lysen altered the scene to adapt it to Fred's needs. He knew that Stanwyck could, like, carry it. And that's why the ending is all her emotional revelation. And then the wording of the Niagara Falls scene changed later. Holy shit. So that he didn't have to end the movie on his big emotional moment. Because he was afraid, because he never told his mommy, I love you. He never said that before. He never told a dog he loved it. He never told a dog. I, I read this and all of a sudden everything about Fred McMurray just like clicked into place. I was like, wow, is that, is that really incredible? And then when I think about that, not long after this movie is when he ends up meeting his wife, uh, June Haver, working on a different movie. So it's like, is that the only woman he ever like dated? Is that the only woman he ever kissed apart from Carol Lombard and Barbara Stanwyck on a, a, on a movie set? You know? The thing is, we don't know if we if he even said it to her. That's just so true. I was never. I wasn't there. I was yeah, never there. We weren't there. We we weren't there. We can't confirm nor deny whether Fred McMurray ever said "I love you" in his entire life. That is so. I know. I I, I was that really just that really got me and the fact that he was crying means it really affected him he had something deep going on there holy shit i mean the fact that the crew would make fun of him every day (laughs) for his emotional constipation oh my god fred mcmurray was psychologically tortured on the set of remember the night (laughs) fred mcmurray was psychologically tortured every day of his life apparently (laughs) jesus christ Oh my which god! Is like, which is like, do you think Billy Wilder like ever heard this story and then like brought it up while they were filming the apartment? Like, I know this is weird for you, but like you're in love with a woman, and I mean, like this is so you know. And you know, normally I would read something like this and I'd be like, hmm, let's unpack this. But there's something about Fred that is just so unbelievably sad. I don't even want to entertain the concept of Fred, you know, making the beast with two backs with you know Gene Raymond or whatever, because it's like this is a man who's just genuinely so emotionally repressed that he's never told a dog I love you before. That is insane. That is... Yeah. Do you reckon he was, like, on set 
like practicing the script, going like, I look. <laughs> I, sweat I fucking look bullets. up to you as a person like <laughs> just like I oh admire God, your work ethic I think uh, I, I, that is so sad I know and then um, but McMurray was really interesting psychologically and I know again this is Barbara Stanwyck's movie and I should not be talking about Fred McMurray but Barbara Stanwyck we could talk about any episode there's not that many opportunities to psychoanalyze Fred McMurray and that's why I've seized this opportunity. He was a notorious cheapskate and not a cheapskate in the same sense of somebody like, again, Joel. Joel was a cheapskate because he was just, that's his, the Midwestern, you know, influence in him. You know, that's that's the, not even the Midwest, I guess that's the pioneer boy in him, you know, uh, the, the paper boy grown up to somehow be an adult man who makes movies for a living. Also, he was just fucking cheap. Also, he was just fucking cheap. McMurray had this deep, like, complex about money. He was such a cheap bitch that he's not even wearing his own clothes in this movie. Those are Mitchell Lison's clothes. He didn't (laughs) own a suit. Yes, they were both six foot three and whatever size. He didn't own a suit. Fred McMurray, a movie star in 1940, did not own a single suit. What did he do? Just wear, what did he wear? Just wear like like a muumuu. I've what? seen <laughs> pictures of him off the set, and he basically is dressed like when you see Dana off the set, i.e., like ugly sweaters <laughs> and like corduroy. Dana was swagging all the time. Let's leave him alone. <laughs> um, <laughs> Let me take Dana's word name out of my own mouth. Okay, so. Um, but yeah, so he's wearing Mitchell Eisen's clothes, like the suit at, at the courtroom. That is a Mitchell Eisen cut. That is a that is a Mitchell Eisen, you know, uh, that's straight from the Eisen archive, you know. Um, and some people say that this whole cheapskatery, you know, stemmed from his family's struggles with money uh, or his insecurity as an actor who doubted his own talent because he feared that someday he, he told I think he told Lizen this, he told everybody this, but particularly Lizen because he trusted Lizen. He always thought that he was a shitty actor and that someday he was going to end up back as like a construction worker or a golf club salesman, which were both jobs that he had held previously. But um, I think. It's also because he was just a cheap ass bitch, you know. It really sounds like what he needed was a therapist. <laughs> yeah. I, that's how I feel about a lot of people from the studio era. I'm like, you are in this because you need attention because of like inadequate turn of the century parenting or being, you know, shuttled into show business at the age of four months. Like, it, that's what it comes down to. It's like all these people just need therapy. That's... Well, I mean, the same could be said for Barbara Stanwyck and her thing with Robert Taylor. She fucking... Oh my God, I know. She needed some help with that. You know, I was I was skimming part of the Wilson biography earlier because Taylor just doesn't interest me as a person. And I thought it was very funny that he kept trying to go out. Apparently he, like, before Stanwyck, he was, like, interested in, like, you know, Janet Gaynor. I thought that was so funny. It's like, he's got very odd taste in women. I feel like it's not so much taste in women. It's taste in, like, money. No, that's right. I mean, and speaking of emotional abuse, you know how Robert Taylor was introduced to the Hollywood scene, right? You know that story? No, I can't say I do. He um he ambushed Joel McRae oh, in the bathroom. Right, okay. Oh God! Yeah, in the bathroom was thinking. Coconut Grove. Joel yeah. was taking a piss, and Taylor comes up behind him, and he's like, "Hi, uh, I <laughs> went to the same school as you did, and our drama teacher wrote me a letter of instruction, and you should take me to meet somebody." And then I think Joel brought it back to the table and introduced him to, like, Joan Crawford or something, who was Joel's date for the night. And she was like, oh, you're so cute. We're going to take you over to MGM. That's my Joan voice. That's not what she sounds like. But <laughs> he he emotionally abused Joel by harassing him in a public bathroom. 
So, <laughs> Which is you the know. most vulnerable you could be. It's the most bon- vulnerable anyone could be is when you're in a public bathroom trying to pee. I'm like, it's it's a dance hall, effectively. You could just like walk up to somebody at any other point, you know. So that just I, that's always struck me as being a very odd. People always tell that's like a cute anecdote from Robert Taylor. It's like I'm like that's weird. That's not something that people do. But okay, whatever. It's weird. Fine. It's weird to just have a conversation when one of you has your dick out. It's just a weird <sighs> thing. No, I wonder if he like waited in the bathroom or if he kept an eye on Joel to see when he got up to go to the bathroom or what the just like shadowing <laughs> yeah I know I'm like was he just you know like every every also do you make... reckon he sidled over and was just like said something about <laughs> Joel stick just like ah nice hog okay here's my <laughs> yeah like was know, there a urinal? credentials were there stalls like where there's there a wall up between them when he did this he just walk up behind him you know like... <laughs> if they're in stalls is he just like poking his head up over the stall next to Joel and just like looking down you know I you know and there's always you know Stanwick um so Stanwick her business manager was Zeppo Marks I don't know how familiar you guys are with this because this is getting a little a little granular but Zeppo once he decided to stop ruining Marx Brothers movies um Comedy wasn't his forte. Comedy was not his forte, but he was very good at making money. So he managed the Marx Brothers finances, etc. And then he decided to go into doing this for other movie stars. And he was a big advocate for buying property because a lot of these people were coming from kind of that, uh, you know, born in a trunk mentality where like they didn't want to put down roots and stuff. And he was like, California is going to explode. You need to buy stuff now because the studios could explode tomorrow. You know, whatever, you know, they're, the Fox Vault could light on fire and kill us all kind of a day. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. So he basically is part of the reason why a lot of, um, to, to sum up the whole thing, why so many celebrities of that era ended up buying property, particularly in the San Fernando Valley, up in what it was then ranch land and what is now my house. And these included uh, a couple different people. Jack Oakey has a very famous estate up there. You know, McRae lived up in Camarillo. Edward Everett Horton owned what is what is basically all of Encino was was at the time was Edward Everett Horton's estate. But Stanwick and Robert Taylor moved out into um, a ranch in what is now Northridge. And uh, I heard this cute little story that was like. They liked it out there because they could go to the drugstore and they could woo and court and have a soda and no one cared because these were all like farm people who weren't impressed, you know, by movie stars. And I'm like, maybe she just didn't want to be seen in public with him, (laughs) you know? I mean, you say that though, but like she was real hung up on him after it all ended, which is like, you could have, you could do like literally so much better, like just see a therapist again. Just, like, never do anything for a man. Yeah. Yeah, she was real hung up with on him. And I, I, you know, people talk about his, you know, his infidelity. I don't really know. I don't really know what the vibe I get on that one is, you know? It feels weird. I, I remember reading up on it and I was just like, she could have had literally anybody else, but she was so hung up on him. And it seemed to really destroy her when he left. And, like, she was so hung up on it until he died. And even after she was, like, like on the day he died, she was distraught. And it's just like, I just don't understand it. I don't it's get like, it. Because he just never seemed to have loved her anywhere near as much as she, she seemed to love him. I mean, I don't know if I'd call it love exactly, but, like, it just, it seemed weird and and i might be incorrect about this but i don't think this started out organically i'm pretty sure this started out as like a studio dating scenario so Mm. it's even weirder 
you know, mm. I think they were initially paired up together as, as a publicity thing. And for it to become that enduring and that deep is already weird in the first place. But for her to be as emotionally hinged on it as she was, I just, because he's just so insubstantial. Taylor's so insubstantial as a movie star. And, you know, I do love me a good insubstantial flim flammy, you know, that's just whatever, you know, I, I don't, I, I, that's I Joel. have, a, that's Joel. <laughs> I was going to say, I have a, I have a shrine to Douglas Fairbanks Jr. for fuck's sake. I, <laughs> don't feel that way about I, I just don't know but I don't get Robert Taylor I've never really gotten Robert Taylor there's some movies where I find him very entertaining but he's never been like a compelling personality to me um, no and I think it's because he strikes me very much as you know how people describe Brad Pitt as like adopting the personality and style and interests and attitudes of like whoever he's around at the time like, if he's dating someone or if he's working on a movie with someone, all of a sudden he, like, single white females that person. Taylor strikes me as being, like, very chameleon-like in a way that's, like, yeah. very deeply disturbing. I do get the same vibe. Yeah. Sociopathy yeah. is the vibe. Mm, mm, yep. I just don't trust anybody from Nebraska. Just like just Fred. <laughs> single white female Robert Taylor is very... Fred wishes he could be as cool and calculating and unaffected as Robert See, Robert Taylor. Taylor could say I love you, but the thing is he, he could say it to get ahead but not mean it. Whereas Fred yeah. McMurray just could not say it at all. Fred is like Sad. Fred is is the human equivalent of like the act of like dropping like an egg full of cartons on the ground. You know, an egg <laughs> full of cartons. A carton full of egg I just <laughs> fucking Christ. <laughs> a carton full of eggs on the ground. That's who Fred McMurray is as a person. He is that act, he's that moment of of, of horrific realization. I just you know, I okay, I can't I can't stop getting back I gotta stop thinking about this. But like the idea of, like, Fred McMurray having these early roles, particularly hands across the table, where he's supposed to be, you know, he's a gigolo. And, you know, oh, his whole ambition in life is to marry a rich woman, and woman can't, and then he's just like, I've never said I love you to anyone before. Not a woman, not a dog, not my mom. It's just like... It's so sad. It's so sad. I know. It's disturbing. It's kind of gross. It makes me feel... <laughs> it makes me feel like I'm shedding skin or something. I know. It's, yeah. It's repugnant. This is already a weirdly sad movie. It's got that, like... I mean, it's not like I'll be seeing you, which is a real gut punch, but it's it's like quite sad. And now it's got this weird it, it's like how Glee is extremely depressing and unwholesome in retrospect because everything about it surrounding it was so bad. Oh, my God. Oh, OK. Well, you want to hear another cool, sad fact about this movie? Well, not really this movie, but uh, real life. Uh, so the scarf, the scarf that killed Isadora Duncan, the one that she wear that she wore when she rock'em sock'em her own skull, was given to her by Preston Sturges's mother. Isn't that Whoa. a little weird? Of all the people in the world that could have indirectly killed Isadora Duncan. <laughs> That's extremely weird. I'm trying to process this. Like... Yeah. Sturges has a very interesting background. He his mother kind of was like um Whatever the equivalent is of like like a, a weeaboo, but like for Europe, like a, I don't like a Euroboo. She basically styled herself as being like a minor member of the like a minor aristocrat and like racked up all this debt by traveling throughout Europe with him as a small child. And that's why he couldn't like relate to other Americans as an adult because he was like basically like a fake European his whole life. That's so weird. I know. Sturgis is just such a fucked up person. 
But this whole movie's full of fucked up people. I mean, Bob everything Sanders about this like, episode right now is just like everyone's fucked up. I know. Sam has got a vendetta against people who are overweight because she thinks that they're morally bad people. And Fred Marie's never said, I love you. And Preston Sturgis doesn't have a nationality. I mean, the whole thing is just. Like... Now I'm just thinking about Sterling Holloway on set surrounded by these nut jobs, just fucking like trying to get through the day. Trying to get through the day and being like, wow, everyone thinks I'm weird because I don't want a relationship and I'm comfortable within myself. Meanwhile, Fred <laughs> McMurray can't even say I love you to a fucking dog. <laughs> like, I really feel for Sterling Holloway in this situation. Like, he's surrounded by absolute nutcases. And he's the one who's made to look like an idiot in this <laughs> Should I light the fire now, Miss Sergeant, or wait till he gets here? But does the room seem chilly, Willie? No, it don't seem chilly, Willie. Chilly. To me, but... And the way everybody around this place has been running me ragged all day long, I doubt if I'd be chilly even in an ice pond. Thank you. Now, see here, Willie Sims, if you don't stop complaining, I declare I'll, well, I don't know what I'll do. Here you are, getting a lovely home with nothing but a few cows and chickens to... Oh, what are a few pigs? And mules. They don't need any care. And instead of being grateful, and the bull. That's the other thing. Uh, like, Sterling Holloway in real life. Like, no, does no one know anything about Sterling Holloway? Because that's such an odd trajectory, you know? Yeah. Like, for somebody, for, like, somebody from Hollywood moving back to, like, the middle of nowhere. And then, like, as a single adult man, like, adopting a child to raise for yourself. It's, like, it's just such an odd trajectory. And, like, everyone's just, like, no one, there's no, there's nothing on Sterling Holloway. It's, like, all, you know, on the hush-hush. It's, like, I need details. Well, I feel like a lot of it just, he just didn't do any of that Hollywood stuff. He was like, peace out. I don't want to deal with whatever kind of intrigue you're doing. I'm going to go be Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> I guess it's just like so many other like Disney things are like exhaustively documented. Whereas it's like, does, has anyone ever like had any interest in whatever the fuck was going on with Sterling Holloway? I don't, I don't know. I just find him fascinating. Maybe that's our calling. Maybe that's what's going to get us the money to replace my mic. Our investigative podcast on Sterling Holloway. Sterling Holloway. Finding Sterling Holloway. Season two of Finding Winnie World. Yeah. Finding Winnie World. Um, I love Sterling Holloway. He's like Buddy Epson, but not a reactionary. You know I love Buddy Epson, but so Sterling Holloway kind of gets me that fix, but while still being like a politically upright person that I can trust. <laughs> you know? Because Epsom's a fascist. There's just so many fascists. There's not enough time in the day to cover how many fascists there There's were in Hollywood. There's truly not. I mean, you look back at it and it's just like, God, every movie is touched by fascism. But I mean, same could be said for today, considering how things are tending. That's yeah. absolutely like, true. I want to know, I was trying to name a single Hollywood actor from present and I just, my mind went completely blank. But like, Jake Gyllenhaal, what's his, what's the go? Is he a fascist too? Can we say that? How many fascists are there in Cats? Wow. Well, Taylor Swift is one. Yeah, we got one. Yeah. Taylor Swift is a fascist. Tom Hooper is um, a fascist for subjecting me to Les Miserables, you know, <laughs> on a bus trip in 2013. I feel like James Corden is definitely a fascist. James Corden is like the court jester of fascism. Who else is a fascist? Um, so many, they're all fascists. Absolutely. All of them are. All of them. In fact, I don't know anyone who's not a fascist. I I, th I challenge them. Maybe maybe Jane Fonda, but that's... Maybe Jane. I, I challenge everyone else, though, to repudiate fascism on this podcast. Otherwise, I will go ahead with my 
your fave is problematic style blog about fascism. <laughs> about cataloging fascism. Anyone who's ever been to a Hillsong meeting or oh, absolutely. Scientology, Scientology bullshit, uh, you're fascist now. I don't make <laughs> It's like, I mean, if we say it, the onus is on them to prove that they're not. So, you know. Balls in your court. I mean, we could say Dan Aykroyd's not a fascist, but that's only because he so strongly believes in aliens. And I don't think a fascist could believe in aliens. So, No, I think that would definitely undermine the, the authoritarian element. Dan Aykroyd genuinely believes in aliens and like the men in black phenomenon to a point where I think he needs some kind of help. But like, I mean, you do you, man. Whatever gets you through the day. His wife was on Howard Stern, and I haven't listened to it, but people that I've seen online have said that basically she comes across as being absolutely batshit insane. So I'm sure they're very happy together. Well, yeah, they've been together a very long time. So um, we'll get into it next week when we're actually covering a film that he's in. But <laughs> That's true. But speaking of partnerships, Preston Sturges and Mitchell Lysen were, if not ideal playmates, then I think ideal workmates. Lysen was a visual thinker. He had begun his Hollywood career as a set designer for Cecil B. DeMille during the silent era and was also a prolific and gifted costume designer who prized the look of a film over all else. And the pearl-embroidered gown that he had designed for Mary Pickford in 1924's Dorothy Vernon of Haddon Hall, for example, was so heavy that every morning Mary would get dressed and then Lysen, who we had to remember is six foot three, would come, pick her up, and carry her onto the set. Fuck. <laughs> uh, Sturges was not a fan of Lysen's direction, but I think that's less because of Lysen and more because Sturges was an incredibly egotistical little bastard. And this is where I'm going to get into some, some controversial statements here. A Lysen movie never drags. Sturges' movies often do. I'm going to be very sacrilegious. And I don't give a fuck. Sometimes when I'm watching a Sturges movie, the directed by Sturges, and there's a bit that's going on too long, I will think to myself, Lysen would have cut this. Like, Lysen would have said, no, fuck that. We're going to take this 40-minute monologue. We're going to condense it into 37.2 seconds. I'm going to pan past some cool forks. And it would work. <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking particularly of the Palm Beach story, which is incredibly lopsided. The train sequence goes on forever. You are exhausted by the time that Claudia Colbert actually arrives in Palm Beach. And on his, in his book on Stanwyck, Dan ha Callahan points out that the opening sequence of Remember the Night, when she swipes the bracelet from the jewelry store, he calls lies and staging of this smooth and suggests that in Sturges' hands, simple things like this scene tend to get overpacked and jittery, whereas Lysen had the tact necessary to, as Callahan says, trim the fat, which I think is completely accurate. I'm going to quote him again, because this is just a sound insight that also happens to align 100% with my opinions about these two. Lysen tended to soften some of Sturge's hard edges with his preference for visual luxury in his settings. And then he adds uh, that a little distaste for what he calls Sturge's is you're watching a movie stunts, which were, in his opinion, tempered by Lysen. And I would have to agree with that. Lysen did not have patience for that. That whole, like, bullshit meta thing that Sturge's shoehorned into every script, and Lysen just did not have time for it. You see this in particular how so much of um, Sturge's characterization revolves around a lot of very clever wordplay, like he's expecting to get a pat on the back. And Lysen will take some of that, and he will just transmogrify it into a purely visual sequence so that the gag plays out visually and it's so much more effective like there are bits and pieces of easy living where it's like you can just tell you could just see Surge is like fuming offset <laughs> because this is not how it was supposed to go but it works because again Lysen is making a movie 
You know, it's not a book. It's not a play. It's a movie. And Sturges, for all of, you know, the elevation that, that he has undergone, you know, since his passing, and, you know, Sturges is a genius, but he never, I don't think, ever had an intuitive grasp of the medium in the same way that somebody like Mitchell Lyson, whose career has gone completely under unnoted and who has lost all of the critical acclaim that he enjoyed in his own lifetime. That was something that Lyson grasped. He had an intuitive understanding of the medium that Sturges absolutely never did. I mean, it's, it's often the way of that, like the, the more um, flamboyant, the more loud person will often get a lot of acclaim in retrospect. And it's like, well, sometimes those people were only successful because they were tempered by people who were more dedicated and more understanding of the craft. You know, it's the same could be said for a multitude of directors that were only successful because they were tempered by other people around them or by the cast or by anything. And it's like, the thing is, quiet people rarely make history. Yeah, it's because no one cares enough about hard workers yeah um if they're not flamboyant which drives me crazy because it's like these people are only successful because of the hard work of other people and yet here we are saying Preston Sturges is the comedic god of the golden age and it's like well that's just simply not true I mean Sturges could be very inflexible like one issue he had throughout the making of Remember the Night was Lysen bending to McMurray's interpretation of the character because he wanted the character to be much more dashing. You know, he wanted him to be somebody who was really very sexy. And Fred McMurray just can't play that. And Lysen was like, look, this is who we have. This is the cast that we have. This is the hand that you're dealt in making a movie and not writing a book or writing this all in your head while you're taking a shower or whatever, you know, while you dream of accepting another author. Oscar. This is this is like the reality of filmmaking. And Sturgis never got that because Sturgis, is, it was kind of dogmatic. In, in the, he wanted the words to be interpreted as he wrote them, which is fundamentally impossible in the studio environment. And I think that's why he was always so upset. So much of his bitterness about filmmaking that you see in, in coming out in something like Sullivan's Travels just comes out of like a fundamental incompatibility between his method of working and how the studio system functioned and how even filmmaking today functions. Like sometimes people are like, oh, if, if Sturges didn't have, you know, the limitations of having to work with lesser talents back then. It's like the lesser talents that he worked with during the studio era are still, quite frankly, way more talented and way better trained than any people he'd be working with today, you know? And he would still get overruled by suits. They would just be dumber suits. Instead yeah. of fending off Goldwyn, he'd be fending off some 26-year-old nephew of somebody from HBO, you know? Ugh. Like, sorry, but if I'm going to fight anyone, I'd rather fight Goldwyn. At least it makes it a good story. One of Sturge's more delightful quirks is his self-referential humor and most people are introduced to this stroke of brilliance by Sullivan's Travels, since its biographical basis is, I think, pretty clear even to viewers who aren't familiar with those other movies. Um, Sullivan directs Ants in Your Plants of 1939. Sturgis did some uncredited script work on what was initially titled Broadway Melody of 1939 and was ultimately released as Broadway Melody of 1940. There's a photograph of Francis D. hanging in the mogul's office, which, of course, is a, sli- uh, a sight gag because Francis married a Joel 
control, but it also works on other levels as well. Surges had adapted If I Were King as a starring vehicle for Francis and Ronald Coleman in 1938. So it's typical Sturges mucking about with like the inner dimensionality of his movies and his expanded universe. Like he's fucking uh, some Stanley. And also because it places us firmly at Paramount, which was Francis's home studio and the site of some of Sturgis's most galling disappointments, including spending six entire months writing a Jack Benny movie that was never made and instead became a Bob Hope movie for which he, Sturgis, received only a partial credit, third build after screenwriters Frank Butler and Don Hartman. And Hartman, I think you too, will be very interested to find... This is a threat. Played what would become a very important film character in its original stage form on Broadway in 1929. Which character do you think that is? I can't begin to guess. He's very important to us, personally. Yeah, what what possibly could this be? Don Hartman, screenwriter, future screenwriter, played Andy Hardy in the play <laughs> Skidding by, Ar- I'm, I, five bucks if you can pronounce this right, I can't. Arania Ellerbeck Roverall, Roverall, which I, I should be able to say that because her daughter Jean was also a screenwriter who'd been blacklisted, but I just can't pronounce the name. Anyway, that is just I thought that was funny. So back to the whole Sturgis like double play thing. Sturgis liked to repeat gags. It was just a thing of his. He liked the idea of having this kind of this very self-referential uh filmic universe and remember the night fred mcmurray's surname is sergeant that's the maiden name of Sturgis's then wife louise and two romantic sequences in the film the restaurant dinner where stanwick and mcmurray get to know each other and mcmurray's declaration of love at niagara falls are set to the song easy living don't be unfair i love you lee it'll be awfully hard to lose you you know what i wish I wish the case was over and you'd been acquitted. Then you shouldn't have had a postponed. That's true. But if I hadn't, I wouldn't have met you. That's true. So the case is over and you've been acquitted. Knockwood. And I pull out a marriage license. Oh, gee. And we march right into the judge's chambers and have marriages. You know you're talking like a four-year-old, don't you? You know where we're going for our honeymoon? Oh, yeah. Niagara Falls. <laughs> but we're there now, darling. Which is, of course, the main theme and title of the excellent 1937 Gene Arthur comedy scripted by Sturges that we love so much I hear on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I personally love this aspect of Sturges. It's very, like, proto, like, internet memery. You know, he's setting up everything to be memed. But the thing was, nobody ever paid close enough attention to meme it, you know? <laughs> so instead, it just kind of became a thing for, for nerds to giggle about, you know, in the 80s or whenever these movies became available on Laserdisc. And you can watch them and be like, oh, I get it now. Um, so one example that... Alessandro Pirolini cites on his book, in his book on Sturges, rather, is um, Waggleberry from The Sin of Harold Diddlebach. And that's preceded by Waterbury from Christmas in July, who is in turn preceded by Wardleberry from the unproduced play A Cup of Coffee. Sturges wrote Cup of Coffee in 1931 and Harold Diddlebach in like 44, 45. So that's almost 15 years of laughing at his own joke. <laughs> I, yeah, we can relate to that. I was going to say. It is very us. And one thing that Pirolini highlights, though, and which doesn't really play a role in Remember the Night, but I would still like to mention, is the ironic use of song. 
contrary to popular belief, I guess, because it's not, it's not really a popular belief, actually, but belief of people who are stupid of brain. Uh, people think Sturges invented this. <laughs> they think that uh, playing a song that is a contrast with like the meaning of, or tone of the actual scene is like something Sturges came up with. I don't know where they got this idea from, but I'm going to dispel that idea right now because it annoys me. Um, this is just the economy of studio filmmaking at play. This is just like, we got what we got, so use it. Sturges was one of three different directors to use the song Isn't It Romantic in an ironic manner. Ruben Mamoulian uses it in Love Me Tonight, which is where the song originated, courtesy of Marie Chevalier, Jeanette MacDonald, and, you know, that whole cast of random people that are interspersed throughout the singing of the song. Isn't it romantic? While I sit around, my love can scrub the floor. She'll kiss me every hour, or she'll get the sack. And when I take a shower, she can scrub my back. Isn't it romantic? On a moonlight light, she'll cook me onion soup. Kiddies are romantic. And if we don't fight, we soon will have a trope. We'll help the population. It's a duty that we owe to France. Isn't it romance? And then Billy Wilder also uses it in A Foreign Affair. Sturges uses it twice. The first when Stanwyck seduces Fonda and the Lady Eve. And again, when Rudy Valley agrees to fund Joel's stupid little airport net web thing in the Palm Beach story. And in both cases, it's a little barbed. It's a little cynical to use a song like that because it's underscoring doubts about women's motives what Sturges called the aristocracy of beauty. This was something he he incorporated into a lot of his scripts. He had the idea, pretty commonly accepted, I guess, now and then, that um, someone like Stanwyck or Claudette Colbert can have whatever she wants if she knows how to get it. And that the particular appeal of a Stanwyck or a Claudette Colbert compared to, I don't know, somebody like a Jean Arthur is that she does know how to get it. That That's the kind of woman she is. Which is why Stanwyck and Colbert make really great Sturge's heroines. Um, this theory of his is at play in Remember the Night, but it's not really at the forefront so much uh, in terms of dressing the scene. It's more played uh, dramatically because Lysen is a much better director than Sturges is. So because it appears first in a Mamoulian movie, does this make it a Mamoulian idea? The the song supplying irony. Uh, It seems possible when you watch Love Me Tonight with that question in mind. But Alessandro Pirolini in his his book on Sturges again points out that Dream Lover, which was originated by Jeanette MacDonald in Love Parade way back in 1929, also has a similar life cycle. You hear it in the major and the minor. Um, Rise My Love, Lady in the Dark, for a movie that's been referenced way too many times on this podcast. It's been referenced once. Let's just... And also, I'm not ready... I'm not ready to give Mamoulian any credits for any. You and I are on the same track there, because I would have to agree. But what I was just going to say is that uh, all these movies have in common is that they're they're Paramount movies. Paramount owned the rights, and they were going to get their fucking money's worth out of those first, like, stabs at sound filmmaking. And Also, i just like to point out that Candace is pronouncing it correctly now, after we I pull just, her out 
for saying caramel. It's one of those things. It's just, it's, look, I will concede to the still incorrect pronunciation. You know, I watched through the entirety of Paramount on Parade, and the only person who pronounces it Paramount is Jack Oakey. So if you want Jack Oakey on your side, that's fine, but whatever. Okay, I can, I can play for a losing team. Well, that's, I mean, like, what, all the other Paramount stars, you're gonna, you're gonna go for them? Gonna be on their side? Yeah, I would rather be on whose side? I don't know if I really want to be on any of their sides, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Who even is, like, Frederick March? like... No, that's not doing? good. I don't want to. But Coop can't pronounce anything right. That's kind of the genius there. They pronounced a lot of shit real weird back then. Yeah. I have to look back at Beesicle, which we already discussed. Oh, I forgot about Beesicle. Just because it was said a certain way at a certain time does not mean they they were correct. I mean, I assume that they knew the name of their own studio. Mm, and I don't know if they assumption. did. I mean, <laughs> it's a big assumption that some of them could even read. So, Oh, I feel like that's a very pointed barb towards someone in particular, but I'm just going to let it slide i'm I'm gonna (laughs) let that ignorance slide just like samwick allowed his ignorance to slide again and again um he couldn't read i it's not even i'm not even it's not even a slight thing i'm not being nuanced about it he could not read he graduated from college that means nothing (laughs) so he did go to usc and then he may or may not have flunked out i don't know why he left just like olivia jade olivia jade can probably read his application this is really mean and i don't think that's true i think (laughs) He had to at least have been able to read. I don't... Who was going to read him his scripts phonetically? How was he going to memorize his lines otherwise? He read Snokey the Cow Horse. Shut the fuck up. There are so many big words in... um, Bird of Paradise? Yeah. The Great the great Moment's got some some chemical names in it. Unless Sturgis was like behind the camera going like, it's yeah, pronounced with the, like, personal. Board just yeah. like written on it. Oh no. I never really thought about that. I guess that's entirely possible. Just like Anna Sten or something. Ooh, that's sad. Anna Sten is sad. We have to do an Anna Sten episode sometime because Anna Sten reminds me a lot of like when people are like, why do they keep trying to make Army Hammer happen? I'm like, oh, this is a long-standing issue in Hollywood. Just, you know, we have this, we've made this investment and we're just going to keep pushing it. Goldwyn tried so hard to make Anna Sten the next Garbo and she didn't even end up becoming the next Joan Bennett. It just didn't, you know, it was not written in the cards, written in the stars. That's, I just did a Goldwynism <laughs> written in the cards. Maybe I'm the reincarnation of Goldwyn. That would make a lot more sense than anything else. It would also explain my affinity for Farley Granger. Who, by the way, um, after Taylor left, did sleep with Stanwyck. So she she did get a little bit of consolation, you know, out of some people. <laughs> she did sleep with Farley. I do know that. Is that consolation? That's absolutely consolation. Maybe that's why it was Stan just a one night stand. Work ethic? In the bed in the boudoir, I'm sure she was very I'm sure she was very pleased. Because like Strangers on a Train era Farley, that is a bit of a coup, you know. I'm sure that made her feel youthful and glamorous. Um you could definitely do worse. I mean oh, look at well, look at yeah. look at Elizabeth Taylor. It's like she was, you know, the hottest ticket in Hollywood. And who does she sleep with Michael Wilding and his fucked up eyebrows? I, I don't know. Some there's no accounting we've, for taste. We've already said this. Elizabeth Taylor made some decisions and all of them are bad regarding men. But anyway, back to what you were talking about. Oh, back about. to whatever I was talking about. Um, okay, so not to take away from, like, Sturge's genius um, or the genius of, like, Wilder or, like, Lubitsch or anyone else who employed that technique, um, even though, again, we are going to take away from the genius of Ruben Mamoulian just a little in keeping with the whole ethos behind this podcast. We somehow emerge as an anti-Mamoulian force. I don't know how or why that happened, but it has. There are elements of the studio system that I find dangerous and that they can and often are attributed to one individual when that's not how it works. This 
extends beyond like denying the influence of a cinematographer on the visuals of a particular film or assuming that the credit on screen reflects the work completed off screen, as in the case of like a large and productive department like the Cedric Gibbons like fiefdom over at MGM. Um, but nothing gets my goat quite like people assuming that an auteur, particularly an auteur whose reputation crested long after his own lifetime, like Sturges does by virtue of being an auteur, deserve credit for a concept or a style or what have you that's older than one might surmise. That really grinds my gears. I hate that. I hate it when people start to pretend that somebody invented a technique that is older than the hills. And I think that it's very annoying that Sturges was still basically inchoate as an artist back when Mamoulian made Love Me Tonight, and yet people still insist on accrediting Sturge's responsibility for a whole, I guess, devices of narration, whole narrative devices that absolutely precede him and his career. I mean, uh, Sturge was still over at, you know, MGM scripting, you know, Dongle's movies at the time. Like, he is not, he's not anywhere. He's not on anyone's radar. It's a thing that happens time and time again. Like, people credit um, Hitchcock with so much that he has co-opted from other areas of film, and it's just... That's what happens with film and art and any kind of creative medium is that you see what others do and learn from it and use it. And to say that any one technique is comes from one person, it's, it's so sh- short-sighted just to say, oh, you know, Michel Gondry, to say that mm-hmm. he is a master of practical effects and he invented practical effects completely like mitigates anything that Georges Malaise ever did in like the inception of cinema yeah. like that's all they had it's, it's yeah it's ridiculous to say that one person especially so late into cinematic history invented something yeah exactly I, I see this a lot with people who quite frankly aren't familiar with early film and by early I even mean like late silent era film you see this a lot with people I see people accrediting things to somebody like Willie Wyler I'm like Wyler was still making B-movie rom-coms when a lot of these other directors were out there pumping out you know Cimarron it's just like it's not it's not there we are not you know and also the 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 access access trumps all and so the contributions of certain directors end up or, or writers or what have you end up becoming maligned because of proximity you know for a long time like paramount movies were hard to find so people didn't understand what travis banton contributed to stream screen costuming or victor seastrom or something uh, you know people weren't and to a large degree still aren't familiar with murnau outside of nosferatu because those fox movies that he made except for really sunrise i guess are still very hard to see and very hard to find. And I, I just, it strikes me as, it's it's like, I, I find nothing sad a lot of times when you see somebody on like TCM or like in a, a film class or something that purports to like instruct people who are not well-versed in it, who are not like as well-grounded in it as like, I don't know, a nerd like, you know, you or I. And it becomes this, this vast oversimplification that's like anachronistic about the development of a certain, I don't even want to say, I don't know. It's just like, sometimes I see people, it's like, or people who aren't even aware that there's a whole department that does something like that it wasn't until uh i went to a lecture by a theater historian who'd written a book a fascinating book all about um i'll link it in the show notes about matte paintings and film and about how really the the matte painting industry the background industry was in large part it was almost like a family-run business it was a generational thing and how much 
that was um, destroyed not only by the end of the studio era and the budgets for something like that, but also by just kind of this attitude where it no longer mattered whether something looked real enough because it's, you know, oh, it's cheaper for us to go out into the desert and shoot a desert landscape as opposed to painting a desert landscape that is kind of fantastical and kind of dreamlike, but that contributes overall to the feeling of the film. Hi, Lulu. You know, something like uh, North by Northwest could never be made just a couple decades later because there's no longer that insist- that interest in having kind of like something resembling like a forced perspective of, of Rushmore. It's like, why can't we just, just, just go to the real Rushmore? And I don't know what that really has to do with Remember the Night, I guess. But um, that devaluing of, of a lot of the, the creative parts of the studio system, I think just goes hand in hand with that tendency to kind of condense and collapse whole segments of the industry into being under the purview of one individual person, like a Preston Sturgis, who again, didn't even direct the fucking movie. He's not even the fucking director. It's one thing to attribute everything to the director. It's another thing to attribute everything to the screenwriter, who's quite frankly drunk 90% of the time (laughs) and not on set. And when he is on set, he's too busy just regaling everyone with tales of, you know, his his cosmopolitan upbringing and like not working and i say that with a lot of love because i think Sturgis was genuinely a genius i also think he was a huge asshole that everyone hated working with unless you were like joel and you loved everybody i mean uh, you know except for veronica lake so maybe now we should talk about different parts of the movie that we enjoy and what they signify both in terms of just like our sheer enjoyment or also like any weird like lingering like fetishes you think anyone involved in this movie might have had because I have some thoughts um, I, have, I have some thoughts uh, the opening shot of the movie is foot shit yep. so yes. that's a problem right out the gate i don't know how we keep encountering films that have foot shit in them or just maybe i've never noticed the prevalence of foot shit before when watching these films but really it's egregious and i'd wish it would be eradicated from film history you know but i feel like it also employed so many people i just don't care they don't deserve it they had whole armies of these people to be to be hands and feet and elbows for people actors who had ugly hands and feet and elbows you know i i find that magical in, in a the lot studio of foot department studio foot department i remember reading something i think it was on the unsung Joe, is that what's called? The Unsung Joe. I'll, again, I'll link it in the footnotes. Uh, show notes, footnotes. Oh, Jesus Christ. Can you tell I just finished a paper? <laughs> oh, no. So, but there's a really interesting blog um, about extras, and there's one somebody had written um, in this blog about a, a hand model who was, she was a double for a lot of actresses in the 30s. I remember, I think in particular, Carol Lombard. Anyway, she ended up killing herself. And it was about the feast or famine nature of that kind of business and how you're always, you know, you're kind of always kind of hoping that somebody, you know, fucks up their hand so that you can eat next week. That's sad. Yeah. Love how Candace always springs these anecdotes on us. And it's just like, well, that's sad. And we're just left <laughs> reeling after she's told us, like, someone's mummified in their own fucking house in California Hills. Like, all right, moving on. So a couple other things. Uh, I think it's the bailiff in this movie is named Fat Mike. <laughs> Yeah. On your way out, send Fat Mike in here. Fat Mike the Bondsman? If you know any other Fat Mikes, you can send them too. Which, now yeah. that we know how Stanwyck feels about 
that. Maybe they were trying to make her see red, you know, like when you place a red, you know, cape before a bull, trying to trigger her into some sort of emotional reaction. That's my theory, at least, about naming him Fat Mike. (laughs) I wrote down, what have you been living in a tree or something? I think Fred McMurray says that up, but I don't know what's in reference to. It's probably like where Stanny was living because she has nowhere to go to. Right. That's exactly what it is. You mean you want me to go? Oh, yes. Where? Where what? Well, after all, I was on my way to a nice, comfortable jail with three meals a day and turkey for Christmas, and now I... Well, don't you live someplace? Uh-uh. Well, where have you been living? In a tree or something? Oh, I had a room in a hotel, but they locked me out. Oh. What, have you been living in a tree or something? It's like, fuck off, Fred. Not all of us are lawyers. Yeah, with okay. a servant. Yeah. Can we just address that he has a servant? Yeah. Who honestly seems like he's very excited to be getting rid of Fred. Yeah. For the Christmas holidays. Yeah, it's really, it's an interesting twist on the whole, like, racist servant role angle. You know, how the only black people you've ever seen in these movies are, are maids or, or porters, you know, etc. Um, but I feel like the character is, again, it's very easy to empathize with him. And he has a lot more emotional layering than a lot of other situations. Because, again, you too also want to get rid of Fred McMurray for the <laughs> yes. entire Christmas holiday. So, absolutely. Yeah, you get it. And I think there's even a bit later on in the movie where, um, remember when he and Stanwyck are staying in their car, well, his car, overnight or whatever, in that field, and it's freezing, and it's like, you know, his his servant, like, packed the bag wrong. It's like, because he didn't care. He was just like, I just gotta get this out of the fucking apartment before he changes his mind, because he has no friends. We know he has no girlfriends, because he's never said I love you to anyone before. So he must not go it's, out much. I think much. it's because he makes the wrong kind of sandwich, and it's just like, geez, what kind of asshole is Fred as a boss? I'd be lacing those sandwiches with arsenic so you know like um for me personally i like the scene where barbara stanwick knocks fred mcmurray over with a cow are you getting any milk yeah it's coming fine hey don't let her move push her back uh, pushing as hard as i can no no don't pull her back that way is that far enough yes that's far enough Oh, you spilled the breakfast. I think that's very good. I also like when, obviously, Stanwyck tries to set the courthouse on fire. Just purely from a like a public menace point of view, I think that it's very anti-establishment, very avant-garde kind of messaging to be going ahead with. I think that the thing that I really don't vibe with as it were to use common parlance of these these days um is that when fred's mother comes to samwick it's like oh he's just he's he works so hard he's such a good boy you know like who cares (laughs) yeah like stanwick's had a fucking hard life too what's she gonna do go to prison for this i mean yeah she did something wrong but like fred is like all up ready to commit a crime He's, like, fully ready to commit a crime. Like, he hasn't learned anything from this entire experience. And Stanwyck's the one who has to be on the moral high ground. I'm just like, this, for a man? No. And, he, yeah, he's proven to have, like, zero, like, moral fiber, which is very, very Fred Murray of him. But it's, like, <laughs> it's not convincing or compelling at all that she should need to, like, step out of his way to, like, enable him to continue to, like, work hard and bake something of himself because he was so easily willing to throw it all away to be with her mm. to begin with. And I feel like that's just because maybe she's the first woman who's ever paid any attention to him. Everything about Fred Murray is disgusting to me personally, but that's just a personal preference. I love Fred. Fred McMurray. I should stop dunking on Fred 
I don't worry. But, you know, it's the ones you love the most that you dunk on the hardest, like dongles or whatever. I'm overcompensating. It's keeping, like, a, a healthy interest. You can't ever idolize someone without fault. Yeah. You've always, always got to keep them down to earth. I don't have a healthy distance in evaluating anyone. It's very personal for me, intimately personal for me, <laughs> and that's why I'm willing to speculate about things like their doodle sizes, whether their fathers ever really loved them, uh, whether they could read. I mean, that one, the second one, there's not really speculation. <laughs> that's just like playing out in the open. <laughs> Douglas oh Fairbanks God. Sr. did not love his son. <laughs> um, oh, we're going to get like the Doug Society like blacklist us and maybe I'll get like well, a pipe Well it's bomb. not libel and it's not slander if it's true. Give me some categorical evidence that Douglas Fairbanks Sr. loved his son and then I'll stop but he did not love him. I can't remember which I can't remember if it's Alan Ellenberger maybe it's Alan or Ellenberger uh, maybe I can't remember who described being at one of the like Ramon Navarro fan club type meetings around like I want to say like 1970-ish it was like an offshoot these were old ladies who normally were part of the Rudolph Valentino fan club but um, since Ramon had died they'd started saying having like Ramon nights because they're like somebody's got to repair his public image which are weird old British ladies and they just they thought that anything reported about Ramon's personal life was absolutely not true and um, that level of denial I found very compelling and very sexy in a way because I identify with it deeply there are a lot of things that I reject once I hear it like how at first uh, I thought I can never tell anyone the Fred McMurray story ever again because I am so deeply embarrassed by it <laughs> that I feel like I'm like reliving his like his trauma like I'm channeling his spirit or something and it's horrible this is too much of a burden to bear that's how those old ladies felt about Ramon they're like it was just it was a robbery gone wrong it's like well you're half right but Ramon also loved cock so I just you know whatever Maybe Fred McMurray did too. I don't know. I mean, Mitchell Eisen did. He was, which is very funny to me because Mitchell Eisen had a very strange relationship with Fred. Um, they were both, again, tall, good-looking guys. Um, Lysen was, Lysen's hard, like, sexuality is probably hard to kind of, like, look at from, like, a modern perspective. You know, it's it's like, I don't know how, really how you would classify it, so don't get me canceled on Twitter over this, but um, he thought it was really sad and pathetic and kind of disgusting how Fred had all the tools to be very attractive to women, but he was just steamrolled by them constantly because he had no confidence. He was like, this kid's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed to be around him. But not like... I mean, honestly, I can... I can relate to that point. Like, it is really embarrassing. He seems like he would be really embarrassing to be around. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I know that Lysen occasionally had a thing for his male leads, but I don't think there was ever anything with McMurray because he was just like, this kid, this, like, this is going in my cringe compilation kind of a deal, you know, like. But it's also just... like when you see someone in your own clothes, but like crying. That's so true. Again, he's probably wearing his own clothes. Yeah, and he's like, now I gotta get that like, shit dry clean. saying I've never been able to say I love you, just like, that really is a bony killer for anyone. I don't think you could ever look at somebody who you've seen that way and be like, oh, that's an attractive, confident person. Uh, I feel like you'd be haunted by that. No, I was just gonna say, I'm imagining the whole situation playing out, like, the whole, like, Kenneth, like, father pig moment you know from 30 rock like that's how i visualize it happening except like again if kenneth were wearing one of jack's own suits 
uh, <laughs> while this were occurring. And also they were on a movie set and there were millions of dollars hanging in the balance. It was like a whole cast and crew like just around the other side of the set. Like, can you imagine being Lyzen's assistant when he's like, can you go find Fred? And then you're just like, ah, he's crying. And... <laughs> Ah, do you want me to say... I don't want to say anything. I feel like I should do just Do I interrupt him. him? Also, like, the fact that he's, like, hiding behind the set. He's not in his dressing room. He's just, like, behind... He's just hanging out back there, surrounded by plywood. Like crying in public. Crying in public, it's like weaponizing your sadness. Well, I mean, like, again, I can't blame Fred. Fred was plucked from obscurity because he was actually a carpenter over at Paramount. Not a lot of people know that. He was he was a carpenter at Paramount. And then somebody saw him and was like, hey, that guy's tall and reasonably good looking. He could be a movie star. And they just made him one, you know? Like, well, there you go. That's it. That's just what happened. And anybody who's gone through that kind of, like, Disney Channel original movie type, you know, <laughs> transition to stardom, I could see being insecure and feeling like you don't know your place and feeling like you're going to get passed over at any other, you know, any moment. And I'm glad he managed to parlay that into Flubber and the shaggy dog. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter if you've never told Flubber you love him. Is Flubber a boy? What's Flubber? I don't think Flubber has a gender. Um, oh, anyway, so what are some more things I enjoy in this movie? Um, I love normally... Sturges does not do sincerity well. I think we all know this. I think that's an established fact. And again, this is what, because Liza directed this and the man's a genius. The scene in which uh, Fred's Aunt Emma passes off to Stanwyck her wedding gown is one of my favorite scenes in film history. Oh, it's beautiful. Was that your wedding dress? I twiddled around with the idea one summer. It was all right again by fall. It is so touching and so gentle and communicates so much in such a brief little interlude. And you can tell, again, where it's been reined in because Aunt Emma does not then immediately burst into a Fortnite dance or whatever Sturgis would have had her do. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's just such a delicate uh, the, the way that transpires. I just am always in awe of, and it's what it's really like the one scene I think from this movie that I could I, you could take and you could show that in a class, or you could you could uh, you could build a whole other story around it. You know, which which to me is is what makes a, a movie scene really fascinating because again, people always go, well, does it advance the plot? And it's like, yes, again, superficially it advances the plot because now Stanwyck has something to wear to this barn dance and Fred Murray's going to see her and think, well, maybe she can be this beautiful housewife, that, you know, farm wife that, uh, that I've been raised to expect from a woman. But also at the same time, it, like, it has this whole other germ of a story, a germ of a background, a germ of a world beyond the world of the movie, which is always so delightful to me and which works really well in Paramount movies. That's just, I think that's just a studio ethos that you don't see. You don't get that sense of multi-layered timing and complexity in a lot of the other studios. That that idea that, that characters and actors in these movies have um, the, the well the characterizations by the actors have some sort of life beyond the edges of this particular angle you know of, of the celluloid is really important and it's not something you get at the other at the other studios where everything is much more punctual or not punctual but perfunctory I guess is the word I'm looking for you know in a fox picture it's like everybody's there because you need to have the butler you need to have the maid you need to have the school teacher whatever it's like you need those things to round out the scene and to have extra bodies necessary to move the plot forward 
but you don't get that sense of interiority of character that you do in Paramount Productions. And I think that's just because everybody at Paramount have really exquisite taste. Oh, I just wanted to say another thing that I think is really cool and fun is the scene where Beulah Bondi is, is basically given Stanwyck the dressing down, like, you're a lovely girl, but he's worked so hard, and theft is repugnant to him, and it's, you know, the anathema of everything he's ever worked for in his life, and you should just basically just leave him alone and marry someone else kind of a deal. So when Stanwyck is sitting there on the bed combing her hair... I think that's the most beautiful shot of Sandwick ever committed to celluloid. I think that's when she's at her most radiant. It's up there with me for like, uh, you know, when she has her raising her hands in the Miracle Woman. You know, there's that's just, it to me is such an iconic Sandwick image. And when you see that, it's very difficult for me to understand why the studios thought she didn't have sex appeal because she has that hurt mixed with, you know, intellect and, and everything that is just like catnip, you know, in terms of 30 stardom mingling, you know, merging into this this particular um, femininity of the 40s. I don't know. I think it's just a really powerful image and it probably was not intended by anyone to be that powerful. And I'm reading into it way too much as a homosexual, but... Um, she looks really beautiful in that scene in the robe with the hair, like her hair down. When yes. She she's expecting Fred to show up and then, you know, she's disappointed. Oh. And it is funny because it comes on the heels of that terrible dress and the terrible hair and, like, the big bow. Edith had really went all out with that, that wedding dress. Yeah. You know, she was just like, we're going we're gonna to do it. We're going to go balls to the wall. You know who also goes balls to the wall in this movie? The answer is Sterling Holloway with his weird fake yodeling. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> Gee, I love her. <laughs> oh. Oh. That's the latest, Willie. Oh. oh, no, you got it out back? No, no, huh? Willie, this way. That's right. Willie, well, you got the oh. with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll practice up on that later. Oh, boy, it's snazzy. Find the mirror. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was just him hearing Barbara Stanwyck's political opinion. Oh, yeah. And he was like, and distract everyone on the set so he could just make his exit. Much like Fred McMurray leaving to cry. I was just going to say, I think it was last episode, maybe, when I made that crack about like seeing former silent stars playing uncredited bit parts you know, in sound movies. Uh, but there's actually an example in this one. One of the jurors at Stanwyck's trial, it's the one sitting next to the woman who actually like has lines uh, you know, to her right, is Jean Acker, um, former oh, Mrs. Rudy Valentino. So I thought that was really cool. Well, there you go. Silent then, silent now. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Gene Acker was married to Rudolph Valentino. It was a famously unconsummated marriage. Uh, she locked him out of the bedroom and it was like, you know, I've made a huge mistake. Also, you know, one of the great old Hollywood uh, lesbians. I didn't know this. I found this out while researching. So I was like, whatever happened to Jean Acker? Uh, she is actually buried alongside uh, her partner, who was a former Ziegfeld girl, Ziegfeld Follies girl, at Holy Cross Cemetery in Burbank. So might make a trip out there. Who knows? Love to see old silent stars thriving on their piddling little extra salary 20 years divorced from their fame always enjoy that always happy to see it it's sad and a little pathetic not as pathetic as fred crying on the set so. yes uh i found out about uh chloe carter the Ziegfeld girl that she lived with in the patricia neal biography uh an unquiet life that came out a couple years ago and that's also well 
looking at the footnotes regarding that, I saw that Patricia Neal mentioned to the author that she knew that Gary Cooper had had sex with Andy Lawler back in the 20s. And I was like, this is just too much confirmation of everything (laughs) that's going on. Andy Lawler was like, I don't even know what the comparison would be nowadays. Is there somebody like Andy Lawler? Andy Lawler was like the poor man's Billy Haynes. He was like everybody's gay best friend back then. And anyway, Patricia Neal said that she, she knew, apparently, that Coop had fucked Andy Lawler. And I just, I was so defeated at that point. I was like... (laughs) Now I know that. Now I know about Fred McMurray. <laughs> I I can't hold all this knowledge within me. And so now I'm glad I've been able to dispel it, you know, not dispel it, but uh, disperse it, you know. Disseminate it. Disseminate it. it. Just, <laughs> just, like, just like Coop did all over Andy Lawler. And now oh, I can share it God. with you people. And now you guys are cursed too. And you have to carry that. Knowledge. I mean, okay, I always suspected about Coop and, Coop and Andy Lawler because I've read some of the, like, the telegrams that were sent between them. And they're very much like, you know, haha, unless you know like what would you do if I was there ha ha you know kind of a deal and I was like hmm that's a little weird but you know it's Gary Cooper it's Coop everybody wants a piece of that Coop you know I, I understand it I, I, I get it I empathize but anyway Patricia Neal I guess is a fairly fairly good source for Gary Cooper you know she knows more about Gary Cooper than most people did and she also got all up in that so good for her good for good for Patricia Neal I guess is the closing remark of this episode good for Patricia Neal <laughs> And good for Gary Cooper, and good for Andy Lawler, and good for Patricia Neal's lesbian silent movie neighbors. Good for everybody involved. Not good for Fred McMurray, I'm sorry. No, not good for Fred. No. This was a terrible time for Fred McMurray. But again, it worked out. He ends up marrying June Haver and making flubber making LGBT history with Flopper. Yeah, maybe he eventually learned how to say I love you. Cannot confirm nor deny, but let's hope he did. There you go. That's that's Remember Merry the Night, Christmas. baby. Remember the Night. Oh yeah, we didn't even touch upon the fact that then she just goes to fucking prison at the end. But again, I'm kind of assuming that people have seen this movie. I think that's a fairly reasonable expectation for listening to this. I just I don't think so, but whatever. She goes to jail. I think that's all you need to say. She takes the moral path and, and goes to jail and um and she's like i love you and he's basically like gonna wait for her and everything's fine but then the question is like is he really gonna wait for her because like again this is gonna kill off his whole career as a lawyer in new york city as a da you know shacking up with an inmate so maybe they just move back to indiana and they have little babies and sterling holloway dances with little babies and they have a little yodel contest i would like to see that sequel well with the magic of cgi (laughs) as displayed in cats We'll have that whole thing played out, except Fred McMurray isn't properly rendered. So it's like everyone else is like perfect, but just Fred is just a bit (laughs) off. Perfect. Just like in real life. Just like in real life. Mm -hmm. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. We'll see you next time. Some more thrills, some more chills, some more vibes. You know, live, laugh, love, like Fred did eventually in his life, I hope. (laughs) At some point. Um, Thank you for listening. Uh, We have appreciated the comments that we've gotten so far on the podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes and anywhere else you listen to this. Your pod catcher of choice. That's what they call it, apparently. (laughs) Very Pokemon. Um, We do really appreciate the feedback. Keep it coming. (laughs) Does that sound desperate? Also, have a very happy and safe holiday and new year. We're welcoming in the new decade with something a little bit flirty, something a little bit fun. Um, And (laughs) the calendar for the new year um, is pretty fun. So we hope you look forward to that. Merry Crimble. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Happy holidays. Bye-bye. Bye.
What do you mean you haven't got any more money? What have I been talking for, to hear my own voice? If you hadn't talked so much, I'd be out of here by now. Well, what do you mean by that? that? Oh, hypnotism. That gag's so old, it's got whiskers. 